Today we are in Luke chapter 12 from verse 35 down to verse 40. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would turn our hearts to your word, that you would open our eyes and you would sober up our spiritual senses by your spirit this morning, that we might behold the true glory of Christ and to seek to live unto him. For his glory and in his name we pray. Amen. If you've been with us for the last few weeks in our study of Luke's gospel, you may have noticed a recurring theme throughout the 12th chapter, which is that Jesus has been addressing the issue of worldly attachment, but primarily through a series of negative instructions. He began first by talking about the fear of man. That was back in verses 4 to 12. Uh, in which he was saying, don't be afraid of what people might do to you. Don't live for the world's approval. It's not worth it. And then he moved in verse 13 down to verse 21 to give the parable of the rich fool as Jesus urged the crowds, don't waste your life on the things that don't matter. Don't be foolish in living for worldly riches and ambitions because it's also fleeting and temporary. And then last week, from verse 22 to verse 34, Jesus reminded his disciples, don't be anxious about your earthly needs. Don't let your worries about food, clothing, job, future overtake the chief ambition of pursuing God's will because he already knows what you need and he'll provide everything you need in this life to live for him. And so throughout the chapter, Jesus has been urging us in this negative fashion as to what kind of mindset we are to not have, how we as believers uh, need to take care and be on guard against being attached to this world. And now today in verse 35, he moves to positively instruct us with what kind of mindset we ought to have. What does it mean to live that unwasted life that glorifies God and is driven by an eternal purpose? How does one do that. What, what must the believer not just avoid in his mind and his thoughts, but what must fill his mind and his thoughts? And simply put, it's this, that Jesus is returning. And what we need is to live like we really believe that he is returning, even any day now. You know, this is the root of nearly every struggle for the Christian. It's not so much that we have difficulty comprehending what the Bible says or that we're unable to 
verbalize the, the truth that God is sovereign, that Jesus is Lord, that eternity is at hand. But our daily struggle is to really digest the truth, to internalize it and have it be translated into real practical living. To, to live like we actually believe the truth that we confess. It's much easier to simply articulate the Bible than to apply the Bible and for it to have a real governing authority over our lives. And so it's on that note that in this passage, Jesus is teaching us to live like it's really true by reminding us that it's really true that he will return soon one day. And the only thing that's going to matter at that point is whether we are found faithful and ready to welcome his glorious revealing and coming. You see, as believers, we are to be by nature a future-oriented people in that we're to be marked by a constant waiting and a longing for that which is not yet here. A certain holy dissatisfaction and a holy anticipation of a future glory yet to come. And as such, there's an urgency with which we are to live because we understand that this life is not our final destination and home but spiritually speaking it's as though we're constantly on the move journeying as pilgrims to the eternal home that awaits and notice how jesus speaks right out of the gate in verse 35 he says stay dressed for action Uh, literally i mean you might see it in a footnote in your bibles uh, in your bible translations on the bottom i have it on on my esv here and a footnote it says literally it means let your loins be girded this is an ancient way of saying tighten your belts get dressed and be ready to go in other words don't get too comfortable and settle down too much in this world Now, of course, Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to buy a house and raise a family and establish your earthly home. Of course, that's just a natural process of living. But he's addressing our hearts and our attitude of not seeking our ultimate comfort and permanence on earth. Instead, he's saying, be always prepared for moving day. Because it's coming. When we leave behind this temporal world and enter into eternal glory. That's our final destination and home. And so in the meantime, we need to get it in our minds that we are sojourners in this world, as 1 Peter 2 says. Because we don't belong here. We don't belong in the kingdom of this world. And in fact, this phrase, let your loins be girded or stay dressed for action, it's more than just an ancient idiom. Because these are the same words that are used in Exodus chapter 12, Verse 11, when God instituted the Passover just before the 10th plague. I remember God told the Israelites, I want you to eat the Passover in this manner. What, how did he say it? I want you to eat it with haste. It's kind of a weird, I mean, you don't have to tell me twice. I'm a very fast eater. My wife always tells me to slow down and she's right. But God told them to eat with haste. Don't wear your Loose pajamas, don't wear your stretchy pants, it's not Thanksgiving buffet. Eat quickly. Fasten your belts, gird your loins. Now, why did God tell them to eat quickly? It's because he would soon pass through the land of Egypt and execute his judgment of striking the firstborn. And as a result, the Egyptians would 
thrust them out of their land. They were urgently and hastily begging them to leave that very moment. And so this hasty meal of the Passover with their belts tightened, you know, their, their, their shoes tied and, and bags all packed, it would signify for generations of how God thrust Israel out of Egypt. Why? To lead them to his promised land where he himself would dwell with them in their midst. You see, the purpose of the Exodus was not emancipation just for the sake of emancipation alone, but it was God taking a people unto himself, to his own presence, to his own determined land where there was rest and peace and security that the world could not offer. And that's what made the promised land what it was. It was not the geography. It was not the topography. It was not the climate. But it was the glory of God physically dwelling in the midst of the people through the tabernacle. That's what made the promised land the promised land. Now, do you see... By way of analogy, what Jesus is implying by using the same language from the Exodus as he tells his disciples to stay dressed, to gird their loins. He's saying, I want you to live this whole life in such a way where you're fully aware that you don't belong to this world permanently. And I want you to look forward to the day when you enter God's eternal rest. I mean, look, Israel never belonged in Egypt. They, they were just sojourning there temporarily. And eventually, their sojourning degraded into slavery. But all the more, this made the Israelites eagerly wait and long for the hope of a day of finally leaving Egypt and entering the true home of the land that God had promised to their forefathers. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying, remember, you do not ultimately belong to the spiritual Egypt of this world. Don't get too comfortable here. Egypt is not the promised land. This world as you see it and live in it is not the promised land. But be like the saints of old, who as Hebrews 11 says, that they they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They were seeking a homeland a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, the Christian is one who is effectively caught in between two worlds. And it's important to understand this because if not, some of the things in the New Testament start to sound very confusing to us. Because the Christian, on one hand, the Christian has been saved, ransomed, delivered out of this fallen world out of the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, fully cleansed of sin by what Jesus has done, united to him forever, secured unto eternal life, and has already been made a child of God through faith. The Christian has received everything in Christ at the moment of repentance and faith. It's all finished and done. His citizenship is now in heaven. He's a member of God's holy nation. This is all a present reality and blessing. You don't have to wait for it. And yet, at the same time, the believer lives in a state of waiting and longing and looking ahead, hoping for something still to come. Why? Because though the believer is no longer of the world, he still lives in the world. One foot in, one foot out. 
And he groans and yearns to be in a world fully rid of sin and death and decay in the immediate presence of God face to face. Again, this is why we need to have a careful, nuanced understanding of how the New Testament explains the phenomenon of our salvation, which is that it is both already and not yet. Now, for instance, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says that by what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, he has abolished death and he has brought life and immortality. It's done. It's already happened. He he did it. Death is already defeated. He crushed the power of death on the cross. And yet, the same Paul who wrote 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 to look forward to that day when he will return and the Lord will raise the bodies of all his people from the dead. And that's when the final enemy of death will be defeated once for all. The way Paul speaks is, then shall come, future tense, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Because that victory will be consummated and physically manifested in a new world in which there is no more presence of death and immortality and eternal life will reign. You see, they're both true. The defeat of death is both already and not yet. In the same way, the promise of heavenly blessing and eternal rest in the presence of God. And there's a sense in which it's already true of the Christian. We have peace with God. We are his beloved children, adopted into his own family. God is not far from us in his life on earth, but his very own spirit dwells within us. He cares for us intimately as our own father. We have every spiritual blessing. And in this respect, we do have our best life now, not the Joel Osteen kind but in the biblical spiritual sense, that the Christian presently experiences the heavenly joys of being a child of God, a joy that this world cannot fathom. And yet, at the same time, the day is still to come when all that we have already received by faith and all that is ours and has been given to us, guaranteed and sealed by the Spirit, will be consummated and realized eternal life will be manifested and materialized we will be totally free from the presence of sin there will be unhindered fellowship with god perfect fellowship no more pain and suffering and death and all the heavenly treasures that we lived for and all the earthly treasures we set aside that we that we forsook in pursuit of the heavenly treasures, they will be cashed in. The day is coming when all our hope, our faith, will become sight. And if that day is still yet to come, should we not live now preparing our hearts for that day? Because that is the day of all days. And to not live lackadaisically, And just languishing with indulgence in this world. But to live in a way that is vigilant, alert, ready for action. This is the holy haste 
that Jesus is speaking of here. Living in a way that eagerly and urgently waits for the day of his coming. And so Jesus says in verse 35, say dress for action and keep your, lamp, keep your lamps burning. That is to say, be ready to move. Make sure you have your flash, flashlights. Make sure they have fresh batteries. Or I guess they make the rechargeable ones now. You just plug in the USB. So make sure they're charged because we're going to be on the move. And be like men, verse 36, who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once, immediately when he comes and knocks. In the ancient Near East, weddings were extravagant celebrations that lasted not for hours, but for days. I mean, it wasn't just a wedding feast. It was a wedding festival. And uh, actually, many Middle East and South Asian cultures today retain uh, this same custom. And uh, actually, perhaps as Westerners, we can learn something from them. Uh, Not necessarily that I wish American weddings would be longer than they already are. It's already a little too long in my mind. But that these cultures apparently view the lifelong covenant of marriage as something so glorious and so weighty that it demands such jubilee and celebration by the community, even over a span of days. But in any case, because wedding feasts in Jesus' day lasted for several days at a time, and often without a predetermined end time, the master of a house would be gone for a while an indefinite period. And all his servants, the butlers, the maids, they would just be waiting for his return, whenever that may be. They had to be ready at any moment's notice for him to knock and come back home. And so, of course, a good faithful servant would be just that. They would be found always prepared and and ready for his arrival. And that's how we are to to be as his disciples. The lesson here is that you can only be faithful to the master, a faithful servant, if you are awaiting the master. If your heart is set on him first and foremost, and you are eager for his return, whenever that may be. And the key distinction here is a mindset, an attitude of expectancy, not laxity. To have a spiritual urgency and readiness about us. And that's the haste that Jesus is describing. Now, what does it mean exactly to be hasty for the Lord's return? Practically speaking, what should we be hasty for? What does it look like to be hasty servants? That's what 2 Peter 3 says. We read it at the beginning of this worship service. That in describing the coming day of the Lord, when the heavens will be dissolved, the fire and the cosmos renewed upon the Lord's return, how does Peter then address believers? He says, since all these things are to come to pass, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And as such, by which you are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You see, the Lord wants us to be hasty for growing in godliness. To be not nonchalant, half-hearted, spiritually idle, just kind of drifting along, mindlessly going through the motions of Sunday church attendance, the same old routine on a weekly basis with no real thought, but to be vigilant 
and actively pursuing our sanctification, seeking earnestly to become more and more like Jesus each day by trusting him, submitting to him, knowing him, obeying him, serving him, discerning his will at every turn and point in our lives. This is how we prepare for his return. It's by dying to ourselves daily and living anew in Christ, seeking his purpose for our lives. It's the lifelong pursuit of being increasingly conformed to the holy image of Christ, that he might daily increase and that we might daily decrease. So much so, even to the point of needing to wage war against our very own flesh. And you know, as we do all of these things, and as we live in this way, and as we have this, this purpose and this motivation and this zeal that drives us to think the way that we think, you know, our lives, especially from the eyes of the world, our lives look very busy. There's a lot to do. You have a lot to think about. We're busy servants. Because the attitude and mindset of the believer is not, hey, just eat, drink, and be merry like the world. Just, just take it easy. Enjoy this best life now of worldly indulgence. Just love yourself and live for yourself and do whatever is right in your own eyes. No, but, but the believer is constantly thinking about the principles of Scripture. The things that God has commanded of him. The things that God expects of him. Never settling for the path of least resistance or the lowest hanging fruit, but always seeking to honor God in all things. That's quite busy. Because we have an agenda to follow. To always carry out the Master's will until the day He returns. That's what it means, you see. To hasten the day of His return. It's not a hastiness that comes from worldly anxiety. But it's the hastiness that comes from spiritual activity and activeness and a purpose and an energy in doing the will of God. Now, all this talk about serving the master and doing his will, some might think, well, gee, are we just expected to be a bunch of slaves? I mean, is that all he wants out of us? Just work and work and work to do his bidding with no rest. No, it's precisely the opposite of that. We serve a master whose very presence is our eternal comfort and joy and rest. And to demonstrate this, look at the astounding way in which Jesus describes what his return will be like in verse 37. He says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Not idle, not languishing, but alert and ready and hastened. Because truly I say to you, He, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Now it should blow your mind that the Son of God would say such a thing about himself. You know, it literally says, truly I say to you, he will gird himself for service just as we were called to gird our loins in verse 35. And the incredible picture is that he will seat his faithful servants at his table as though he were a waiter. And he will serve them with a meal. Now what kind of esteemed, honored master serves his lowly servants as though he were their servant? Only 
the Lord Jesus. And didn't he depict this so illustratively the night before his betrayal and arrest, before he would go to the cross to lay down his life unto death, to be a servant to the uttermost. But there, just before that, in the upper room with the twelve, Jesus arose during supper, and he dressed himself for service by fastening his waist with a towel. He got on his knees and began to wash the disciples' feet. You know what Jesus was imprinting into our minds? To remind us that God never calls us to give anything to Him, which is not already all from Him and of Him. God the Son descended from heaven, ultimately, first and foremost, to bless us, to feed us. And it will always be that way. How can we give anything to the one who is the giver of all things? Every command of God, therefore, is for our highest joy and blessing. That He would be the one to to nurture us, to provide for us, to bless us, because that's who God is. God never demands His people to serve Him because He needs them. As if God needs servants to get all His errands done for Him. No, God is eternally self-existent. And self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he himself is the giver of life and breath and everything to all mankind. Acts 17.25 Look, theology matters. The self-existent and self-sufficient nature of God. The independence of God. Theology matters because it tells you who God is. What he is like. And most importantly, what he is not like. God is not a slave driver. God is not a master like Pharaoh. But he is the fountain of all life and being. The gracious and generous master who gives of himself to his servants. And he is so satisfying and so joy giving that it is far better to serve as a doorkeeper in his house. Than to dwell in the comforts of the tents of wickedness. His presence is so heavenly that heaven itself is depicted as entering into the joy of the Master. See, this communion and fellowship with Jesus, where He will prepare a table before us for all eternity, this is what awaits all who are faithful to Him, who who, who do not waste their lives on the fleeting pleasures of the world, but who are eagerly and, and, and urgently awaiting His return, persevering, in faith. So verse 38, if he comes, if the master comes in the second watch or in the third and still finds them awake, then blessed are those servants. The second, third watches of the night, they're the different shifts spanning into the wee hours of the night. And so the question here is, who knows when the master will return from the wedding feast? Is he going to come back at 2 a.m., at 4 a.m.? Who knows? But the faithful servant is the one who determines, I will be awake and be waiting for his return, even unto the dawn, no matter how long he takes. You know, it's been about 2,000 years since Jesus ascended up to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And some of you who visited Israel, you probably stood on the, the same ground or at least the same mountain from which Jesus ascended. 
And it was there that the angels promised that he would return in the same way that he ascended. And in God's sovereign wisdom and will, Jesus has not yet returned. And in our eyes, it feels that it's been a while. The Lord has tarried and we have 2,000 years since then to think about it. And perhaps it's easy for us to wonder, hmm, maybe this thing will keep going. I mean, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it's just kind of a thing in the distant future. But we don't know whether the passing of 2,000 years has brought us only to the first watch in which there are still 2,000 more years to go, or whether the 2,000 years, whether the year 2023 has brought us into the final watch and dawn is imminent. We don't know, but that's the point. Because the important thing that Jesus is implying here is this, blessed are those who do not care about where on the clock of redemptive history they are, but only that they are living as though he will return at the very hour of history in which they live. And the resounding testimony of 2,000 years of church history is that every faithful man and woman lived as though they assumed that they had been born into the last hour before the dawn of Jesus' return. And that's the mindset he wants us to have for every generation of the church. Now, don't be like all those silly end times predictors who have a failure rate of 100%. You know, back in 2012, what were they saying? Oh, the Mayan calendar. Oh my goodness, the world's going to end. And then they made a movie about it. And we're still here. We're still going. Every few years, it's just some bozo that's just trying to make a name for himself and saying this. And I don't know why people believe them. Don't don't be like that. But what Jesus is saying is just focus on living godly lives. And that's by saturating your mind with a thought, even the assumption that he will return very soon within your lifetime, even this afternoon. And if you had known that, how would you be living? Would it be different than how you're living now? And the main question is, when the Son of Man returns, will he find true and living faith? Will he return to a people who are spiritually awake and sober, on full alert and eagerly welcoming their master's return? Or will he rather find a spiritually languishing people who are drowsy with worldliness and they're nodding off to slumber for a nap in the fields of Egypt while the true Israel departs for the land of eternal rest? That's the warning in verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had, broke, had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. And so you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now here Jesus shifts gears a little bit with a different illustration to emphasize the unexpectedness of his return, hence the need to be ready at all times. Now, this illustration might be a little confusing at first because earlier Jesus depicted himself as the master who was returning back home from the wedding feast. But here he's talking about himself as a thief coming into the house of a master. But the word he uses here for master of the house is actually different. 
than the word he used earlier, which is technically Lord. Uh, the Lord will return from the wedding feast. But here, the, the word is a homeowner. Okay, so he's, this is two, these are two completely different illustrations. And what Jesus is saying is, if the homeowner had known what time a robber would come and break into his house, then he would have been ready. He would have been prepared. And in fact, he could have relaxed for quite a bit. And then, just about, just about an hour before the thief was coming, he just got, got some things in order. You know, make sure his shotgun was polished and everything. But of course he doesn't know. And it's because he doesn't know. He needs to be ready. At all times. And if he's not, he'll be in loss. And he'll be in for a great ruin. And so in the same way, the day of the Lord will come unannounced like a thief in the night. And all who are unprepared for his coming will be in for an eternal loss. Because they had put all their stock into this temporal perishing world instead of into the eternal imperishable things of God. And so the very simple question for all of us is, are you ready for that day? Is your heart prepared to welcome Jesus? And rejoice at the sight of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great glory? Or are you drunk from eating and drinking your fill of this world? That your spiritual judgment is impaired. And in your heart you secretly think, Lord, please delay. Please come back again another day. And actually, when we say that, what we're really saying is, Lord, please go away. Now, church, why do you think Jesus has not told us when he would come? But only that he is coming. Why didn't Jesus give us the exact timestamp of his return? It's to test us. Is to test our faith, to test and reveal what is really in our hearts, whether we truly see Him and live for Him as our Master, and, and, and we live in a way that's corresponding to that faith, or if we've just declared Christ as Lord merely with our lips. But it's not only that the Lord tests us in this negative way to reveal and bring the chaff to the surface that He might sift away the chaff. But I think that God has withheld this information from us to test us positively. To affirm the wheat that they really are wheat. And to strengthen their faith. And to help them be prepared. How so? It's because those who have ears to hear, they will hear the words of his unknown but imminent return. And it will only grow their longing for him. It will only intensify their aching anticipation to enter into the joy of their master. I mean, isn't this how Peter speaks in 1 Peter chapter 1? In verses 6 through 9, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then what does Peter say? He says, 
Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as you look ahead to that day when you will see Him. You see, the trials of this life, the sorrows of living in this darkened world, the burden of our own sinful flesh, and just this tireless fight of faith, don't they make us groan and instinctively cry out, Lord, when are you coming? Lord, how much longer until that day? But beloved, those cries of asking when, you know, they they are really some of the most intense expressions of faith and affection for Christ. Just as Peter wrote, though you don't see him now, you love him. And you wouldn't know how to express such love and, and heartache, as it were, if you knew exactly when he would return. But in this way, God has kept us waiting Because he is at work by his spirit to stoke the embers of your soul. And his spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, helping us to long for the day when our redemption is consummated, as Romans 8 says. And so through every trial and tribulation, we walk by faith one day at a time, clinging to that promise of his return. And by it, God is continually purging us of the residue of worldliness that is still within us. And he is preparing for himself as the heavenly bridegroom. He is preparing for himself a holy bride that is increasingly set apart from the world and unto himself. Church, are you weary and discouraged in your fight of faith? Weighed down by your own struggles with sin? Then let those things lead you to look upon Christ and yearn for the day when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure are you ailing and suffering from disease and bodily pain then let the cries of physical pain be channeled into crying out all the more for your Lord to return which will be the day of the fullness of your redemption, even the redemption of of your body that has been marred by the corrupting effects of sin and subject to decay. Are you disappointed and uh, filled with despair by the state of this world and where everything seems to be headed, namely a nosedive downward? And let these griefs remind you of the only blessed hope which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, church, even our struggles and discouragement, they are all meant to induce in us an even greater affection and longing for Christ, who is all our hope and joy and peace. What the world means for evil, what the devil means for evil, God means for good to strengthen our faith, to grow us in true godliness as we cling even more tightly to our beloved Lord. That's the hope that we have. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your master and Lord, 
why don't you come to him and trust in him and find in him the only lasting hope and satisfaction and security? He, he, he calls you to himself not because he wants to take from you, but because he wants to give to you the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the joy of his presence that is all freely offered to you because he has given himself unto death on a cross for sinners like you. And why would you live this life just banking on all these empty promises and failing hope that the world offers you? Why would you waste your life on all these meaningless things and be utterly unprepared for that last day when the Son of Man will return to judge the living and the dead. Come to Him now. Confess your sin. Entrust yourself to Him who is gracious and merciful. And know the joy of being His servant. There's really nothing like it. You know, I think of the testimony of Polycarp of Smyrna. You may have heard of him, maybe you haven't. But he was a man who lived in the second century. And Polycarp served as a pastor of the church in Smyrna, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, but hence we call him Polycarp of of Smyrna. And uh, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. Can you believe that? He personally knew the Apostle. I find that fascinating. But in any case, Polycarp, he died in his old age as a martyr under the hostile Roman Empire, and he was an old man when he suffered martyrdom. He was in his late 80s, at least. And an ancient letter recounts the details of his martyrdom, and it records that Polycarp, having been arrested, he was brought into the stadium to stand trial before the ravaging and howling pagans of Rome. And as the proconsul demanded Polycarp to swear an oath of worship to Caesar because Caesar was viewed as God. And that's why they actually called Christians atheists because they refused to bow the knee to Caesar and worship him as God. And they believed in the one true God. So ironically, the Christians were called atheists. But as the proconsul demanded Polycarp to swear an oath of worship to Caesar and to publicly revile Christ, to curse Christ and I will spare you, This old man, Polycarp, he opened his mouth and said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? I love this story. I mean, church, isn't this true? He has never done us wrong. All of our service unto Him, He has been faithful. And we have been served by Him more than we could ever render service to Him. He has only blessed us, cared for us. And is it not our unfailing joy and blessing then to serve our Heavenly Master who has saved us and given His very own self for us? And so with that in mind, let us then serve Him. Let's wait on him, be faithful to him, and seek to do his will. Let's not live like people who have no master. But may it be that he would find us ready and eager to welcome him whenever he should return. And that day, for us, his people, it will be a glorious day worth living for and worth waiting for. Let's pray together. 
Our gracious Father in heaven, thank you again for the gospel. Thank you that you have sent for us, blind and lost in our ways, a king, a ruler, and a master who reigns over us in truth, in righteousness, in love and grace. And we thank you that you have given us as a reminder this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And as we take it by faith, this ordinary bread and cup, which we ask that you would set apart for this holy purpose. Lord, you have given this to us to partake as a reminder that we eat and drink and proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. Help us then to look forward to that day. Help us to live in light of that day and would you strengthen our faith and nourish us and cause us to persevere until the end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.